Have you ever heard of Robert Leroy Parker? Well, hold your horses, partner, and don't answer so fast. He was born the dirt-poor son of a Mormon farmer and grew up into a legendary horse thief, rustler, and bank robber who ran with the wild bunch in the Old West. We'll explore the origin story of the man you know as Butch Cassidy next. Paul Newman is Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid is Robert Redford. Catherine Ross is Etta Place. Dynamite's ready, Butch. Well, that ought to do it. Think you enough dynamite there, Butch? Most of this is true, and all of it blazes with action. You've never met a pair like Butch and Sundance. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. Wow, am I ever excited to talk about today's book. I really like this author. I really like this topic. Our time machine's going to be moseying on back to the Old West, where we'll meet a man who was behind one of the frontier's most romantic legends. And he had one of the all-time great nicknames. He's a fellow who was a modern Robin Hood, who one of his many ex-girlfriends said, took care of more people than FDR and with no red tape. Charles Learson is back to share his new book, Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. If you're familiar with the sensationalized, thinly researched Hollywood depictions of Butch, you'll find the real man even more entertaining and charming. Charming is a word that comes up again and again in the book. People just like the guy. Charles Learson joined us previously to discuss one of my all-time favorite books, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. In it, this dedicated journalist redeems one of baseball's all-time greats, stripping away the lies of fraudulent sports writer Al Stump, who concocted tales of a brutal, belligerent racist that bore no resemblance to the Georgia peach. You can enjoy that conversation in our archives at historyauthor.com, iHeartRadio, iTunes, or our YouTube channel. And you can visit our guest at Charles Learson on Twitter and Learson.com. That last name is spelled L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. You've seen Charles Learson's work everywhere from Sports Illustrated and Esquire to the New York Times Magazine and People. He has also been an editor at SI, U.S. Weekly, and Newsweek. And by the way, former editors write some of my favorite books. I can always count on picking it up and there not being any fluff in there. I love the way that they force every sentence, every anecdote, every word to justify its place in the book. Okay, now that we've saddled up our horses and hired a lookout to keep his eyes peeled for the sheriff, let's join Charles Learson and meet the ultimate Civil War baby gone bad, Butch Cassidy. I'm joined via Skype by Charles Learson, author of Butch Cassidy. The True Story of an American Outlaw. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Charles. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Dean. Well, I read this book quite a while ago. I was fortunate to get an advanced reader copy, which means I didn't feel guilty like I was desecrating it when I took the highlighter to it. I highlighted a lot of little passages, a lot of things that not only were about Butch, but places where I heard your voice coming through, things that were clever, your experiences researching the book. And Butch Cassidy was not what I thought I knew. I guess he's one of those names, just like Ty Cobb was in your previous book, that you think, well, I know everything about that guy. I don't need to read anything. I usually say that about people like George Washington, where people figure, well, I know his story, guy in the dollar bill, the cherry tree, and I know that's not really true, and I know he was president, and he was real tall, and that was about all I need to know, so I'm willing to move on. I guess maybe I was thinking too much of 70s villains like in uh, Banachek or Have Gun Will Travel or something. Charisma is the word that comes up 
again and again in contemporary descriptions of him. And you remark upon, quote, his rather adorable little blind spot about his relationship to authority, not seeming to understand why he wasn't allowed to do what he pleased. Governors and lawmen and strangers and policemen, all of these people who you would think would lock the door and clutch their purses when he walks into a saloon or rides into a town, they just end up liking the guy. They really fall for him. They want to help him. If you wrote this as nonfiction, nobody would believe that everybody just loves this outlaw. So describe the man as he would be if I was a bank teller and I ended up on the wrong end of his 45. Well, you might not want to meet him under those circumstances. <laughs> Part of his uh, shtick was that he sort of play acted at bank robberies and train robberies. And this tied into his bigger philosophy. He could be very stern and he could, as I say in the book, he could clunk you on the head with the barrel of his Colt 45 if he thought you were taking too much time or not being straight with him when he was trying to rob you. But all of that was done in a spirit of trying to create intimidation so you and he wouldn't move on to the next step, which was violence. He was a guy who and I'm going to say this, I wish an asterisk could appear next to my head when I say this, who never killed anyone, asterisk, and had a rule about not killing anyone or even harming anyone, even financially, not even harming the the everyday people who might be in the bank or on the train when he committed those robberies. The only entity he wanted to harm were the corporations that were shipping the money, running the railroad, or operating the bank. So he had that sense of morality built into him, and that came through in his charismatic personality, I think. It seems like something that a guy who would come and even steal your watch or say, give me one of your horses, would then say, well, I'll give you some money for it. Even though a lot of these stories become impossible for you to nail down as you're writing Butch Cassidy, the true story of an American outlaw, there are enough of them that are nailed down that you start to hear those stories and you say, yeah, that sounds like Butch. You really get to know him through your book and you start to feel like if I had to be robbed, I guess, if I did have to be a bank teller and I was just going to cooperate and, hey, I don't want to die for, for the money in the vault because it's not my money. <laughs> he's a good guy to get robbed by because he's going to give you at least a chance the way he speaks to the people and the way he, he'll pull back other members of the wild bunch that are maybe being a little extreme. It's not him, I don't believe, but there's one of them that he'll say to him, why don't you feel how great and luxurious the sky is above your head, right? In other words, stick him up, right? So <laughs> I didn't expect that at all coming from him. Yeah. Mark Twain wrote a, a book called Roughing It, which was a sort of a travelogue or a memoir of his experiences going out west to try to mine for gold, I guess it was. And he encountered these people out there, outlaws and non-outlaws, who were, he said, kind of like human donkeys. They were just so dumb and devoid of any kind of rules of life, whether it was hygiene or uh, morality of any sort. The West bred people like that, too, for reasons we could get into. But he was not that way at all. He was a guy who, which Cassidy liked fine clothes, fancy clothes. He liked the the latest ragtime music. He was a big reader of books. You know, he was a, a meticulous dresser. He died in a suit of yellow cashmere, <laughs> which just goes to show you uh, what kind of a dresser he was in an obscure place in Bolivia. And he was kind of a guy, as I, I think I say in the book, like yearning towards the 20th century from the 19th. He was, he was yearning towards the new life that was coming and, and the new way of being. And so he was an enlightened fellow and was trying to learn as much as he could and, and be a modern fellow and not kind of wallow in the uh, semi-human, semi-animal existence that it was kind of, frankly, possible to lead out West. You say that about him being modern and how he looks. And I thought earlier when I dug out the book, took it down off the shelf to do our interview, I thought, he looks like one of those people that if you go to a park, they have you dress up in the period costumes and they sit you down. He looks thoroughly modern there. He doesn't look like one of these caricatures that we get from the Old West movies where the guy is unshaven and looks like he's never taken a bath in his life. He looks comfortable in those clothes. He looks like he could just start to speak with you. And he does through your book, of course, because we get to know him really well. He's not somebody that is 
the old west that we learned from those radio serials where you just think he's two-dimensional he's just out for the money in fact he even takes this job if you can call it a job because in this period you don't really have a lot of opportunities and you write in butch cassidy that there's a question of why you it haunts you in every corner of outlaw history and you say that cowboy crap gets old real fast. And I realized that those jobs, even though it sounds real romantic, it looks nice, you're out, you're, you're in the sun, you're with animals, you're with horses, which are beautiful. But when you really have to do that work, and I've worked on a farm myself, it does get old real fast. So here's a young man that has a heart that does yearn for more than that. And I wanted to ask you, what will readers learn about that and his conflicted ideas about should I settle down should I try to find a job where I'm in the 1800s version of a cubicle or should I take it on the road what what makes him choose that since he is a person of refinement and intelligence well he makes that choice more than once and quite a few times actually in his life his whole life he wavers back and forth between the straight life and the the life of the outlaw and when he's in one position and viewed from a distance, the other position always looks quite attractive. You know, the outlaw life was, you made a reference to it. I think one lesson that I learned while researching this book was the power of boredom. I do say that cowboy crap got old pretty fast, that shoveling the manure and cleaning out the stalls and harvesting the hay. And it's great work and it's noble work, but it's incredibly boring. And the West is relentlessly beautiful and inescapably boring to work out there and to travel, to go from town to town. The distances were so great and, and it was often a matter of weeks to go from town to town. And even to visit your neighbors was often a, you know, a huge couple of day trip. People lived so far from each other. And that was part of what made the West difficult was the isolation. The winters are very brutal in these states we're talking about, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, Utah. He came from a, a very desolate area in southern Utah, Beaver, Utah. He was born in Butch Cassidy in 1866. He was a poor Mormon boy, the son of people who'd come uh, over. They were recruited by missionaries. They were converted into Mormon, to Mormonism in England, and then they came to America and settled in, a, in groups in the whole Mormon settling of Utah. is a well-known story. And he was part of that and very poor. And I think a lot of what he did and a lot of other outlaws, they were motivated by the need to have more to life than just getting up and doing the same thing every day and just getting back in the saddle and, and riding every day, as nice as that sounds in the short term. So that was a big motivation for him and for a lot of other outlaws. You know, I was very lucky to have the subject of Witch Cassidy because, you know, if you've read a lot or even a little bit about the Old West, you know that a lot of those characters that we know through movies Wild Bill Hickok and Jesse James and Wyatt Earp, people like that, they had an unsavory side or more to them. They were just names and figures that Hollywood got a hold of at some point and gussied up and cleaned up and turned into famous cowboys and cowgirls. But with Wood Cassidy, I was lucky to have someone to work with who went that same route, who was bored, wanted more to life but then didn't sink down to a level of depravity that some of the others did. Wasn't a goody two-shoes, but was a, a moral man who, who actually stood for something. And there was an idea behind his outlawry. And that idea was to fight for the little man in, in the West and to fight against the big corporations that were coming in and doing such brutal and awful things to the little men in the Old West, the little men and women. You write in the book that he lived by a strict moral code, though you say he'd never describe it as that. Not steal from people who were going to starve. There's one story that you can't nail down for sure, but it's one of the many in the book where you say it really sounds like him. He'd taken the horses from some policemen and that he had the canteens. And so he rides back on the horses to go there and give them the water. Because there's so many other stories like that, you get a flavor of him as a human being, somebody who would rob a bank and he would go back and you know, he'd, he'd blow the money. That was the thing, right? That was part of this moral code that you're supposed to blow all the loot on a big bender and buy drinks for everybody and maybe not even have any left. How would that moral code manifest itself when you're in the wild bunch, when you're in a group with Butch Cassidy? Well, Butch's moral code involved not killing people and not 
hurting people, as I say, even financially, that when he and his gang would get aboard a train to rob it, people would naturally get scared. The passengers, they'd hold out their watches and their jewelry, said, here, take this. They wanted to seem like they were cooperating with him. And Butch, and, and he directed his gang members to do the same thing. They would say, no, 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 we don't want yours. We want theirs. And that incident, that kind of interaction came up again and again in the newspaper accounts of the robberies, you know, that would follow the robberies. So that was peculiar to Butch Cassidy and, and what the newspapers like to call the Wild Bunch, his gang. The idea that outlaws would, after they knocked off a train or, or robbed a bank, would then have this huge celebration and blow all the money. That wasn't peculiar to Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch, but he did participate in that ritual. And it's a weird thing. It said something fundamental about the nature of being an outlaw that you really weren't in it for the money because part of the macho outlaw thing was to then blow all the money. You'd go into the saloon and you'd declare, you know, drinks for everybody and you'd buy whore visits for people and you'd do everything until you'd spent the fifteen twenty thousand dollars you just robbed from the train, and that was part of the honor code. It was <laughs> stupid. It made no sense, but it showed you that these robberies that were being conducted were almost done for sport, almost like a fox hunt or like something like that. They were a set up thing that they. Some of these guys, the smarter ones, they enjoyed the challenge of setting up the robbery and the thrill of committing it, and then the money itself just went. I mean, with Butch Cassidy and his crew, the Wild Bunch, those guys, they often had to take straight jobs in between and work on ranches and towns in stores or whatever to support themselves, kind of like actors between work while they were plotting the next big thing. They lived like that and they they seemed to accept that as part of the bargain. You know, we were creeping up to an age where Americans were reinventing themselves in the late 19th century. The, the, the world was changing fundamentally in so many ways through technology, through the telephone. You know, we already had the telegraph and we had the, the automobile around the corner and we had so many different things, electric lights and electricity coming to the cities. It was a revolutionary time. And a lot of people were going from small towns, north, south, east and west to the big cities. And they were they were reinventing themselves. Butch and his crew never quite got there, but they were still on that other side of the line in the 19th century where they were trying to do as well as they could in terms of excitement and reinventing themselves in a 19th century context. They were just born a little too soon. They were Civil War babies, and they were born a little too soon for the automobile and things like that, but they were trying to reinvent themselves in a way that was less primitive you know, Butch was born in uh, in Southern Utah, and he grew up in a cabin, one of 13 children in a, in a little cabin. He didn't want to replicate that life, and he didn't want to then be the father in a, in a cabin with 13 children. He wanted something else. That's, that was a common American dream, right? He was a first-generation Parker. His name was Parker, Robert Leroy Parker, and he wanted something better. And that idea of wanting something better and not settling for what your parents had motivated him. And in his case, he didn't go to Chicago or New York and become a streetcar conductor or something like that. He stayed out in the West and he became something that intrigued him and amused him, which was an outlaw, a robber of banks and railroads and a rustler of cattle. He was just going to do it on his terms where it wasn't so seemly and violent. He was going to do it on a on terms that he he could live with on his you know and keep his conscience clear you've been to that house where he was born as i recall not the house where he was born there's a, there's some dispute about where he was born exactly but the house where he grew up it's outside circleville utah which is not far from beaver and when i was there it's since been renov renovated quite extensively but when i was there there was just this fallen apart old wood house didn't really have a plaque or uh, it just had a, a little crude box nailed near the front door where you could put in a donation for maintenance. And uh, it's very primitive, very crude. There's a, uh, a stone outside where the kids, you could see they carved things in the stone. You know, after the chores were done, there was nothing else to do. And it was and life was pretty boring. You know, if you were growing up in Circleville, Utah, and, and you could just see see why Butch as beautiful as it was, if you had to get up, look out that window endlessly, you pretty much just had, had to get out of there. He grew up in a very, you know, hard way of life. 
a very unmodern way of life. He grew up in a way of life that could have been the medieval times. A lot of people could say that at that point in history in the late 19th century, that we went from the medieval to the modern pretty quickly, you know, thanks to technology. It was, a, it was an earth-shaking and uh, whipsawing kind of time for the psyche. He lived through that in his way. I want to dig a little into your research there. You go to places. That's an important part of researching a good book is to go as much as you can and walk on those floorboards and look for the carved names and details like that. Your book probably has the most in-depth bibliography of any book that I've ever had come across my desk since I've been doing this show and really dug into the end of the book, much less a book that features such a variety of unreliable narrators. And I could imagine that that would get frustrating as trying as a researcher, but also you don't want to pass that frustration on to readers. You don't want readers to be frustrated with it and say, well, hey, this book says right here on the cover, the true story of an American outlaw. So give me the true story as much as you can. You write that, quote, you're always on marshy ground when dealing with professional obfuscators, scrambling in pursuit like a panting Pinkerton, which is a nice image. I like to think of you chasing after the facts that way and trying to nail down those primary sources that are reliable and actual documents. That challenge only gets worse as the years pass from your subject's death. You're forced to rely on phrases like, without citing any sources when you refer to somebody's story, and it's impossible to say for sure. How did you know when to add those qualifiers versus just leaving something out entirely because even though the story was very good and it sounded like something Butch Cassidy would do, it just didn't seem like it passed the muster to maybe be true? Yeah, well, I spent four years working on the book. And after you do develop a smell instinct and things pass the smell test and your, your sense of smell gets better, if you will, as time goes on. But you're right. It's difficult. I'm coming off a book where my, my last book was about Ty Cobb and, you know, baseball player who played from 1905 to 1928. And baseball uh, is a very different subject in the sense that people have schedules and, uh, you know, they're putting themselves on exhibit and they go to a town. And uh, in those days, there were so many more newspapers. So any town of any consequence has five, six, seven newspapers, and they all write stories about the baseball game. It's very different here when you're dealing with, with outlaws. You're dealing with people who are trying to stay hidden, who when they do have to say something to the press, it's usually under circumstances where they're, where they're awaiting trial or they're in, in trial or you know, they want to put a, a certain spin on things. Or, and, and then you have a case of the Western newspapers operating with very little information and even less conscience will kind of make up things and, and say whatever they want. You know, Butch Cassidy, uh, you know, I found more than 50 instances of his being reported dead, you know, long before he was, he was dead. So th there were all kinds of stories and people have taken advantage of that. This gives you a certain freedom too, of course, if you want to look at it that way, that you could say whatever you want. There are really crazy books out there that have Butch Cassidy helping Pancho Villa and the Sundance Kid going to Europe and helping and, and the Middle East and, and, and helping Lawrence of Arabia later on and, uh, and, and, and stealing radium from Madame Curie. And, and, and another guy wrote a book where he said there were five Butch Cassidy clones <laughs> fanning out over the Western landscape. It really gets bizarre. And uh, so the lack of information allows some people just to create fiction and often not very good or interesting fiction. You have to be wary of that. You you, you want a you want a good story, but you don't want to you don't want to deceive your reader by presenting something that's just made up to be a good story. So you look for you do look for uh, people that might have met him. You know, the, one of the interesting things is Butch Cassidy's first biographer was a guy named Charles Kelly, who was a terrible racist, crazy guy, and his. The book that he wrote is called The Outlaw Trail, which is not the most fun book to read. It's kind of hard to read. It's disorganized. He published it himself. It never really got whipped into proper shape. But he did us the service, Charles Kelly, of in the 1930s going through the West and finding old codgers who were still alive, who remembered Butch Cassidy or, let's be honest, who said they did, but who told their stories and the fact that this, after a while, the stories, you know, when they struck similar themes or or said something or someone could produce some, uh, an artifact that which he was a kid and he'd admired Butch's gun and Butch gave him the gun. And some of them 
sort of rang truer than others. And I try to indicate in the book which ones I'm I'm less sure of. But Charles Kelly did us a great service by going through then. And there were a lot of other cowboys that wrote memoirs. <laughs> the cowboy memoir for a while in America was a genre in the 30s, 40s, 50s. These guys were still alive and they were writing. And some of them had encountered Butch Cassidy. They were just kind of glancing encounters. It's interesting that before the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid came out, which was in 1969, Butch and Sundance were pretty much forgotten figures. People still talked about them in that in that Intermountain West area in Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, Utah. But beyond that, they were really a distant second or third to Jesse James and Billy the Kid and outlaws like that. The movie kind of revived them and not only revived them, it was such a big hit and it, it stirred so much curiosity that it created these, for, for, for quite a few decades after the movie, the movie's 51 years old now, but for quite a few decades after that, there were a lot of researchers who'd been inspired by the movie to go learn more. And they dug up a lot of a lot of stuff that's actually very verifiable and true. And so the movie was was responsible really for a lot of good research. Now that's petering out. And just like the Western genre is a sort of a baby boomer thing and the baby boomers are petering out. We don't see that as as much. And, And when I went to South America to do my own research, I found people surprised to see a, a, I was like a Butch Cassidy tourist and and some people hadn't seen one of those in 20 years. Huh. And so uh, they were happy to see me and their stories were getting kind of rusty. But that's the way it went. It's an unusual field to cover because the law people, the, the Pinkertons who you mentioned, for example, that was a private detective agency. They kind of filled the function of the FBI in the days before there was an FBI. They were, they were the closest thing we had to a national police force, but they were a private company. So they were, and they worked for banks and railroads and sometimes big cattle companies. And they try to whip up fear of outlaws and crime so they'd be hired. So even the things that they said were not really trustworthy. So wherever you went, as I say, you're on marshy ground and you had to be careful. It was one of the, every book has its challenges and that was one of the biggest ones with, with this book. It must have been so time consuming and you must have had to be so dedicated. And I know this is one of your talents and yet I still marvel at it because you had to pick up all those books. You just mentioned the memoirs, cowboy memoirs. You have to go through those. I don't imagine that they're always meticulously indexed and you have to find the Butch Cassidy part and then you have to pick up another one and read another one. That must have been such a pile of research. And I like that you pass somebody in here, multiple people, you say, sometimes they're sourpusses in this discipline and they're they're telling you it's not worth admiring them. One woman even goes so far as to tell you that Cassidy is not worth studying, she says, and people are telling you you shouldn't glorify grifters and this kind of things. And yet he endures. And when we meet him in your book, he does seem worthy of study. He does seem interesting. And when you describe him there sitting in that house with, uh, you know, half a dozen brothers and sisters staring out that window at the unchanging landscape, just wishing maybe for a cloud to go overhead to change the day, you can sympathize with them. We were all kids in school that were bored, for instance, and we've all been lonely. We've all been frustrated, especially recently with being stuck inside and isolated. And I don't know, I came to feel for Butch Cassidy as I'm reading Butch Cassidy, the true story of an American outlaw, because I could relate to that. I could relate to being a young man, if not in a hurry, a young man that yearned to be doing something else, something exciting, something different. And he has that in there. So I thought that It was funny that people discouraged you from doing this, but I also was thankful that you persevered because he's worth learning about. And because we learn about him, we learn about all those Old West things that otherwise we'd have wrong because we're just basing it on the old movies and TV shows and radio shows. Yeah, I decided to back at some point and kind of write about the people who were the Butch Cassidy scholars and not pretend I was in the first rank of Butch Cassidy scholars because those people can get excited about <laughs> things that aren't very exciting. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, that's just their thing. They're, they're so deeply into things. But I latched on to two very helpful gentlemen, uh, uh, Daniel Buck, who lives in Washington, and uh, and uh, Michael Mike Bell, who lives in England. And they know each other very well. And, and those guys were great guides to me to get me through a lot of the 
the nonsense and to point me in, in directions, you know, away from crackpots. And uh, I, I, every time I post now something on Facebook about Butch Cassidy, I, there's one person who comes on who's written some books about him and all who's who says, you're wrong. Butch Cassidy died in Alaska in, in 1955. <laughs> I don't even know where the, how they decide on the places and the dates. But I, I did get into their world, the world of the, the sort of the fringe people and the kind of, uh, <laughs> I won't say crackpots, but uh, or people who've been accused of being crackpots. And uh, I had dinner with some of them and it was fascinating to me. Some people have spent 50 years really doing this pretty much full time and you working to support their Butch Cassidy habit. They get addicted to the research. Dan Buck, who I mentioned, is not a crackpot at all and brings very high standards to the research. He and his wife, Ann Meadows, and actually wrote the book. They wrote a book called Digging Up Butch. They went to South America in the 80s and actually wound up and got permission and found found an old guy in, in Bolivia who said his father was a witness to the, I found the same guy, he's still alive, and was a witness to the final moments of, of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid's life. And, and they got permission to dig in a cemetery down there, which was no, no small thing. And came up with bones and then through DNA tests with the Sundance kids relatives here in the, in the United States found out they were the wrong bones. They were, they belonged to a, a German immigrant. So people have gone to that length to actually go into a, and to dig up and try to find the bones of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kids. So I made the decision to actually write about them too. And the people who were obsessed sometimes in a healthy way, sometimes in a not so healthy way with Butch. You're enjoying my conversation with Charles Learson, who is decidedly not a crackpot and who, I have to say, has given me the equivalent of my first drink here, the gateway drug into learning about Butch Cassidy. His book is called Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. For more on the book and his epic biography, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, visit at Charles Learson on Twitter and Learson.com. Tom Clavin, who I interviewed about his book on Wild Bill Hickok, which is titled simply Wild Bill, writes of our guest, Learson refuses to buy into the Hollywood hype and instead offers the true tales of Butch Cassidy, which turns out to be more fascinating and fun than the myths. The book reveals that Butch lived a full American West life before and during his time with the Sundance Kid. Let's touch on those silver screen stand-ins and their artistic license that was taken by the filmmakers. Listeners have probably seen at least some of Paul Newman and Robert Redford in that 1969 film by William Golden. He cared little for the facts. He wanted to tell a story, and that's despite the fact that he put in that trailer that I played at the opening of the interview that much of this is true. There are also hundreds of books out there that are of varying levels of veracity. How did the performances in that movie match up to the real man that you introduce us to here, so dapper with his bowler hat askew on the cover of Butch Cassidy? Well, this is a case, you know, it, it, when you're a writer of books, you see, and, and you write it on a subject that Hollywood has touched, you see that Hollywood has no shame about changing anything, adding people, subtracting people, you know, giving a guy a wife or racing his wife from uh, whatever. Uh, there's no shame involved. So, but in this case, William Goldman, one of the great screenwriters of all time, did only a little research. He was, as a kid, he'd, he'd heard about Butch Cassidy and he was sort of interested in him. It was a, kind of a back burner kind of thing. And I found, I went to this, William Goldman's papers in, at Columbia University, where he went and where his papers are. And I found in the Butch Cassidy folder, like there was a comic book from the 50s and a couple of magazine articles and the script that he wrote for the movie. And so that's as much kind of research as he did. Paul Newman, who played Butch Cassidy in the movie, did even less. He was just all about like getting a feel for the, I mean, he was a great actor, but he, in terms of research, that wasn't his thing, and he wasn't about to do that. So between the two of them, they didn't know very much about the real Butch Cassidy. And yet, and yet, they somehow came up with a character who, by accident, but by fortunate accident, is in a lot of ways resembles the real Butch Cassidy in the sense that he's charismatic, witty, charming, 
and interested in his surroundings and interested in the, this whole thing of society and how, how people interact with each other and fascinated with the world around him. And so in that sense, which is a very big part of the character, you know, the things that the character said and did in the movie, mostly all, you know, complete nonsense and fiction, but the essence of the character is actually true. Somewhat less so that with Robert Redford, who played the, the Sundance Kid, the real Sundance Kid was was very handsome, as of course Redford is, and could be charming, like Butch and Redford, but was also very, had a tendency towards moroseness, and always wandered away and wanted to be by himself. He was in a lot of ways, the opposite of Butch Cassidy. And the woman in the movie, Catherine Ross, if you remember her, beautiful actress, talented actress. She was called Etta Place. Her real name was Ethel Place, where she called herself that. Place was almost certainly not her real name. Very much a mystery to researchers and, and to me, even after four years of trying to study her, we know very little about her. But we do know from one picture that she has standing next to the Sundance Kid taken at a photo studio in, in Lower Manhattan when they were here briefly, that she was very beautiful. And not in a way that, you know, you always hear like women in history books are beautiful. And then you see the woman, you go, what? <laughs> say, well, you have to understand the context of the time. No, she was just beautiful. And uh, you could see it in the picture. And, and, and not only that, but a crack shot and a great horsewoman, admirable in many ways. And she went off to South America with the two of them. She never had been Butch Cassidy's girlfriend. And in fact, we can get into that. Butch's relationship with women is very... I said he was very squirrely about women, and there are Western scholars who think he may have been gay, and he was certainly a third wheel in the relationship with uh, Sundance and uh, Ethel Place, and when they went to South America, it was not a menage a trois, they, uh, he lived in one part of the cabin and, and they lived in the other. By the way, and this shows you how Hollywood changes things, they up and went to South America in, in 1901 left from New York, which was why they were in New York. And William Goldman had a, had a hard time selling the studio heads on this part of his script that these guys would take over. They said, no, John Wayne never ran away. He's got to, they've got to stand and fight, you know, the, 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 the lawmen who are pursuing them. And then William Goldman said, well, that didn't happen. I'm sorry. You know, and they said, ah, we don't care. Just, but he finally talked them into a, an abbreviated and and very much streamlined version of the, of the South American part of the story, because in reality, they went to Argentina for a while where they tried to go straight and run a cattle ranch. And the three of them li lived on that ranch and then returned to a life of crime. They went to, uh, uh, they were in Chile for a while and then they uh, were in uh, uh, Bolivia where they uh, met their end. And so in the movie, they just go to Bolivia. Those scenes were shot, by the way, in Mexico. So Hollywood changes everything. So there we see a, a streamlining and a, and a changing of things. You know, you always have to be suspicious of getting your history for the movies. That's, that was another lesson for me in this book. You quote a 1905 guidebook that warns a man takes his life in his hands when he goes to South America. And just the parts of you at the end of the book talking about going there, you're trying to get into that museum in San Vicente, Bolivia, and the idea of them going down there, I see what you mean. That's not that nice, smooth Hollywood story that we would like. We, we want them just to ride off into the sunset, and it better be an American sunset, damn it. You know, we don't want them sailing off to South America, this place that we can only find on a map. Why do they decide to head down there? And I ask you that because having read the book and read about you following in their footsteps, it really is a continuation of their story if you step out for a minute. Even though he doesn't die with his boots on in Utah in some shootout with Pinkerton guys, he's still seeking that new life. He still wants to avoid what, what I think of as the cubicle. No, they didn't have cubicles back then. But tell us why. Why do they choose? Why do they set their sights south? Well, there were a heck of a lot of Americans going to South America when they went, because if you wanted that experience and you were living in the eastern part of the United States, say, where most, the vast majority of the people were, you could go to the American West. But they'd already done that, and their name was out there, and there were wanted posters all over for them. So they, they felt they needed to go someplace. South America beckoned. We can only guess because they never said, but it was a very familiar land to them. If you if you went once I got to Argentina and even Bolivia, I saw that if if you kind of took a, a map, if you will, if you imagine and like folded it in half and like 
ink wasn't dry <laughs> and you touch like the landscape, the weather in, in, in Argentina is very much like the American West. It looks, it look, you could be there, you know, the mountains, the, the streams, the, the open prairies, it's all very similar. And, and so there was that actually South America, when they went at the turn of the 20th century was booming place much more so than it is now. The cities were bustling because of mining to a great degree and, and the way that the European countries were sort of colonizing them in, in a sense that they were buying up their mining rights and business was booming for a while. I was going to say it wasn't a third world country, but it was it was on its way to being a first world country and then stuff happened. And now it's very poor and depleted and, and you could still see the infrastructure of this of some of the cities that were there in in Bolivia and all to Pisa and all where I was which was the nearest big city to where they they died and it was a place you know and it remained so after it was a place for starting over America was a place for starting over right for a lot of Europeans and uh, who came here and start their life again and live the American dream. If your American dream hadn't worked out, we say, well, let's try the South American dream. Or, uh, you know, of course, after, after the uh, Second World War, a lot of Germans, Nazis, and try to start again in Brazil and in, in Argentina. It's always been that, it's always had that kind of open land. You can rewrite your own, reinvent yourself and start again. So th that was one reason they went there. But it was a very arduous journey. It was a 33-day boat trip. And then that took you to the edge of, you know, where they wound up going. Then you had to go inland and, and they wound up in this remote area, uh, beautiful but remote area at the foot of the Andes where uh, in Cholila where I, I made my way to. And it's funny, you could be a mile away and people d don't know where their houses were. It's very hard to get directions and find them. But then we found their cabins, walked around in them. And then I followed them, their trail into uh, Bolivia and, and uh, went there into San Vicente, which is, I say in the book, if you ever go there and you shouldn't, you know, because it's, it's, it's a horrible little town. It's a mining town. And, and be careful if you ever get it the bug in your head to go there because there's like five or six San Vicentes in, in Bolivia. So make sure you go to the right one. But it's this mining town and you have to kind of bribe the guy at the front gate of the town to get in. And then there's, believe it or not, a museum that's sort of came to be in the era of Butch Cassidy tourism. And there's a few scattered phony items in there. But as they say in the book, I think Butch would have got a big kick out of that because he was all about, he was all about this sort of like, cynical, skeptical attitude about stuff and about, you know, the P.T. Barnum aspect of life. And also he was a professional obfuscator and a professional fugitive. So he would have kind of liked this idea of that all this misinformation and misdirection was going on in the museum. In this museum, you can see the bones that Dan Buck and his wife, who I mentioned earlier, Ann Meadows, dug up that are not Butch Cassidy's bones, but which are labeled as Butch Cassidy's bones in the museum. But I wouldn't take the trip. I just I just would read about it in a good book about Butch Cassidy. I have such a book right in front of me right here. Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's definitely worth picking up. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that South American part. As you were talking about it, I thought of the group of confederados, as they're known in Brazil, 10 to 20,000 Confederates who, after the South was crushed in the American Civil War and defeated and reunified, they decided to take their skills and go try their luck in South America, where slavery was still legal in Brazil for another more than 20 years after the American Civil War. Yeah. So they thought, well, maybe they could apply their abilities, and the Emperor of Brazil was happy to have them come there and see if they could make a, a go of it. As you said, it looked very much like the Old West, where the plantation's way of life really didn't work there but they they gave it a shot and their descendants are still there so that period by the time they are finally banning slavery which is 1888 butch cassidy and the old west there that's really a rip roaring time there so i it really did have a draw for americans that i guess it doesn't have anymore yeah well the times have changed and bolivia especially is a, a very kind of sad place and a poor place and They've sold all their mineral rights, they've cashed out, and now they don't really have anything to sell anymore, and uh, they're just trying to get by. I don't know if Butch and Sundance and Ethel Place would have gone there if those conditions were prevailing. They went there with a sense of hope and optimism, and in some parts of South America, that's, that's hard to find.
you also tell us a lot about the language of the period, which I liked in the book. I liked that I learned how they really spoke. For instance, you give the example that the stick em up, which for the third time is very familiar from the movies and those radio serials. Actually, they would say throw them up and they called overalls overhauls, little things like that that I really enjoyed in Butch Cassidy. Also that you show us them as regular people when they're trying to adjust to things like how often they're going to take a bath. You know, I think Butch is the one who takes a bath more than the others, as I recall. And then they start getting in that idea of, you know, hey, maybe we want to keep a little cleaner ourselves because he's so dapper. There's one event in the book, the Outlaws Thanksgiving in 1896. Pull out a couple of chairs for us. Let's sit down there with Butch and the Wild Bunch. Have Butch pour some coffee for us, which is a fun thing to watch. At least that, that's how it came across to me from reading Butch Cassidy. What's the significance of that gathering? And if we were able to sit there at that table, what would we learn that would be surprising and intriguing? Since we're probably thinking we're just going to be sitting down with a bunch of uncouth outlaws who are spitting on the ground and chewing tobacco, what would that Thanksgiving in 1896 really have been like? Well, this is one of the things that William Goldman, the screenwriter, missed when he didn't, didn't do research, because this isn't, this isn't part of the movie. But I found a, one of the people who was there, one of the women wrote a stage, almost a playlet, based on it in, in the 1950s that was presented, and she was interviewed about it, and she had a lot to say about it. What it was was this gathering at a place called Browns Park, which is sort of a famous place for being tolerant of outlaws. There was a lot of farms and regular ranching going on, but it was also very tolerant of outlaws. And it was that Thanksgiving that you mentioned, and people were gathered around, and every outlaw in the vicinity was there, as well as every legit farmer and the, and the mayor, and everyone was dressed to the nines, as they used to say, and, and because people actually in the old West, they all had this one suit of fancy clothes or women had a, at least one fancy outfit because everyone, uh, there were traveling photographers who came around and would take your portrait and everyone had to get, get their portrait taken and for this portrait, everyone had to have these fancy clothes. So everyone had these outfits, the men with the stiff collars, because this is really far back into the, the wilderness with these rough hewn log cabins. And everyone was sitting around and there was the entertainment, which was, you know, an accordion player or someone playing the violin and someone long prayers. And then the doors burst open at one point and it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid serving the dinner. I mean, it actually it's you know, it seems like a scene that was should have been in the movie, as I say. Uh, they were part of the, the scene. Everyone took the day off from what they what they usually did, and were ha they were having a traditional Thanksgiving, which I found out was pretty much already established what the traditions were, the turkey and the corn and the cranberry sauce and the, the, the you know, the creamed onions and right down to that, you know, and it was, uh, and, they, and they brought it in and everyone was laughing and having a great time and Butch and Sundance were trying to balance the gravy boats from spilling and pour the hot coffee and, and act with the towel over their arm, like a fancy waiter in a fancy restaurant. And everyone got a big kick out of it and, and remembered it for the, for the rest of their life. And this was actually the first recorded instance of Butch and Sundance being together. They didn't meet there because we know that because they were very familiar with each other. And everyone thought it was funny that they were doing this thing together, these, these tough, slick, sexy outlaws. But it was the first time, the first recorded incident of them being in the same place at the same time. That's another air, way in which Hollywood fudged things because Butch's much better friend was a guy named Elsie Lay, I think by this time was serving life in prison maybe uh, and wasn't at the, at the Outlaws Thanksgiving. Elsie Lay was very similar to the Sundance Kid in a way. Both the Sundance Kid and Elsie and Butch, they were big readers. They often had books in their saddlebags. They were smart guys. Elsie Lay's grandson, who was quite very old and he died in 2017, I got to interview him in his last months of his life. And he said to me, well, you know, they wouldn't have made him, they didn't want to make a movie called Butch Cassidy and Elsie Lay. It just doesn't <laughs> sound as good. Yeah. So they made a composite character of, of Elsie and the Sundance Kid, and that became the Sundance Kid character in the movie. And here's another little fun fact that until just before the movie opened, I think it was a matter of a month or so, the movie was official title was The Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy. <laughs> just because that name sounds so good, The Sundance Kid. In historical terms, Sundance, uh, real name, Harry Longabaugh, 
Harry Alonzo Longabaugh wasn't a quite as fascinating. A, he was an interesting guy, but he wasn't quite as fascinating as Butch. Didn't have the same like unwritten rules and populist ideas as Butch had. And but in terms of the name, it worked very well in a movie title. It does sound like they would be fun to hang out with, even if you weren't an outlaw, even if you were upstanding. And I guess that's why you'd have governors and sheriffs, as I mentioned, liking them. And saloons would not bolt the doors when they came in. There's a great story. You just used the phrase fun fact. Butch Cassidy, the true story of an American outlaw is full of them. One of those is that they get drunk and they shoot up a bar after one of their big scores. And then they come back hung over the next day and they count up the bullet holes that they left and they give a silver dollar to the tavern keeper for every hole that they made in the wall. It's just fun that, that they would do that. And it, it shows something. It goes a long way towards softening that idea that maybe would make you cheer for them at the end of the movie. In fact, if people haven't seen the movie, I won't ruin it. But, you know, Hollywood wants a happy ending, right? And so anybody who obviously is gone by now and goes down to Bolivia and, and dies the way that they do, that's how what people wanted to see in a movie. And when you see a little story like that where they don't have to do that, I and mean, we've all been hung over, I would assume, maybe the kids that he grew up with there in Mormon Utah weren't, but often you're ashamed of how you acted the night before, right? Like you're going to go back to the bar while you're hung over, while your head is splitting open and say, well, we're going to do math because we're going to count all these and then we're going to pay the guy our money i thought little things like that and there are so many of them in the book i compliment you for your ability to keep them all straight and keep the book moving so fast this was a book that defeated any attempt to skim it i never felt that hey i want, I want to skip forward here to the more of the shoot 'em up part it really is jam-packed and their lives seem like they were so full and then you get the wild bunch in there you give us views and and insights into those people that rode with them in this loose conglomeration of a group who would think of them waiting tables things like that it, it really is a fascinating portrait and while you're telling us about them we learn so much about that old west world that is a place maybe we wouldn't want to visit but we we want to know what it was like because it is romantic and it is part of our shared history yeah yeah it was it was a, it was a great education for me to go out there to drive around in the West. You know, I'm, I'm from New York City and uh, I hadn't spent much time at all out in Wyoming and Montana. You know, it's a place where you set your GPS, you know, and the, the voice on the GPS says to you, in 386 miles, bear left. You know, <laughs> yeah. Because those are the kind of the hunks of space that you have to travel just to get to your motel or whatever. <laughs> it was a very educational experience for me, very enlightening. And I got to see why Butch wanted to sort of spice life up a little bit. Well, even if I hadn't interviewed you last time at Radio City, I would have had an idea you were a New Yorker because you use Yankee Stadium as a unit of measurement. You say that the, the whole population of Wyoming in Butch's day could have fit into Yankee Stadium. So it gives you an idea of the wide open spaces. And for somebody who we would probably describe as a people person, it was hard for him to be so isolated, to never see a new face, to never meet a new person, to never be able to ply his trade, which seemed to be the glad-handing. You, you could see him being a politician, or many of those Old West gunmen did go into the law, and they went into they went into writing. You said they write their memoirs and stuff. So you could really get an idea of why he wanted to live a life. I mean, look at Montana on the map, and then look at that crowd at Yankee Stadium, and imagine, imagine those people just scattered there. No wonder the guy wanted to get out of the West and go where the people were and have some fun and hear some cheers. Right. He was a natural entertainer. I guess he had that in common with the man who played him in the movie, Paul Newman. He wanted life to be interesting and entertaining and upbeat and, and fun. And uh, he was stuck in an area where, you know, alcoholism, suicide was a huge problem because of the, the isolation and the, and the distance from each other. Not in the East, but around Ohio. And we started to get out of the uh, into the Midwest when they had the land grants. They gave people a certain amount of land. And you were able to survive on that amount of land. And then when out past the 100th meridian, it wasn't working. The soil was too arid. So they gave people who just applied and filled out the forms. You got free land and you got a tremendous amount of it sometimes. But that worked against you ultimately because you were so far from your neighbors. You were isolated and heavy drinking and depression and suicidal thoughts and actual suicides were part of life out there. And a lot of people, you know, the, I read a, a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the woman who wrote The Little House on the Prairie, and the, the woman who wrote that biography said that, you know, the, the Homestead Act ruined more lives than it helped because uh, getting all this free land was 
was a double-edged sword at best. You know, you you were you got a lot of free land, but then it was very arid land, and you were very very far from the next human being, and that's turns out to be not a good way to live. So the West had its challenges built into it, that, and that were very different than the the John Wayne movies we were seeing. Well, I can hear hoofbeats of a posse in the distance, and I do have to compliment myself for not using that many Old West puns. I wanted to keep this as factual as possible, and those cowboys weren't all talking like that all the time and spitting tobacco into the spittoon, although that's a great sound to use in the movies. We have time for one final question, and I hope I've done my job here. Listeners can hear just how much I enjoyed reading this biography, but I wanted to give you the chance to make your pitch so why should readers pick up Butch Cassidy and learn, as the subhead says, the true story of an American outlaw? Well, I think that they should pick it up and see how life was the same back then and how it was different. We had the haves and the have-nots in the Old West. was very extreme, and, uh, and Butch aimed to do something about that and to take a little from the haves and, in a way, give it to the have-nots. It's a great American story. And it's a kind of a story that's gotten lost. And to go back and to rediscover something, an important story about America, not just about this one man, but about the way life was in a great hunk of these United States, I think is a worthy reading adventure. Well, Charles Learson, author of Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw, thank you so much, not only for your time today, but this story of an America with the haves, have-nots, and have-guns will travel. I always enjoy talking to you. I am sure I'll think of Butch Cassidy and mention it just as much as I do Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Two really great books of scholarship, great books about going back. If you want to see how to go research a topic, not be discouraged by people who tell you not to do it, and then write a book that's fast-moving, brisk, really enjoyable. I find myself reaching out and picking up the book just because it's great to hold it in my hands and think about just how much great value you get out of reading it. It's another fascinating subject. You really did butch justice and the America of that Old West. I wish you the best of luck with your book as you mosey on down the trail, and I can't wait for the next time I get a book in the mail that has the name Charles Lee on the cover. Well, thanks so much, Dean. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and today has been no exception. They were outlaws, running out of time and out of space, and a changing world was closing in on them. From the American West to New York to the dangerous new frontier of Bolivia. Again, the book is Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine trotting along like usual. I tip my cowboy hat to Charles Lerson for joining us and for introducing us to the real man behind the Old West legend. Follow him on Twitter at Charles Lerson and visit him at Lerson.com. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and Butch on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. You can also find our full archive of 200 interviews, so subscribe there if you can spare a click. And I also want to mention that next month we'll be celebrating five years here of the History Author Show. We've had a few guest hosts every now and then, but mostly those have been my shows. And so I appreciate you listening. If this is your first episode that you've downloaded or streamed, or if you've been here from that very first interview back in August of 2015, I want to thank you for your time, for your comments, for your retweeting things and sharing and telling a friend and all the authors who found me and said, hey, I'd like to be on your show. I appreciate that so much. One of my very favorite interviews was with Charles Learson when we discussed his book, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Facts and being fair, two figures in history, is really important to me. And if you're convinced all the stories about the Georgia peach as a racist monster are true, I ask you to doubt that just a second. And check out Charles Learson's meticulously researched book, one that debunks many of those myths and gives us back a hero. Well, that's it for this Old West installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio.
And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.